0: The world has many kings, many leaders, but it only has one sovereign ruler. There's only one king of kings. There's only one Lord of lords. And this king, this Jesus, he doesn't share his glory with guys like Nebuchadnezzar. There's an old saying that there is a God and you are not him. This is true of all of us, and it was also true of King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see how the king learned this lesson the hard way in today's study of Daniel 4. Across the history of mankind, most nations and most forms of government have been bad. Across the history of mankind, most of the nations, governments, rulers, and rules have not had the best interests of the people in mind, and they've not been especially immoral in their rule and in their reign. Now, does that surprise anyone? Well, if you're a theologian, it wouldn't surprise you at all. If you're a student of history, it wouldn't surprise you. If you look back at the 20th century, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Chairman Mao's of the world have set a pretty low bar for what ethical leadership looks like. The 20th century is just pockmarked with some absolute villains. But that said, every century has been no different. There's always been tyrants. There's always been a deficit of morality, a deficit in ethical leadership. There's always been great and, and powerful men subjecting others to their will and under their foot. You go back in times of antiquity, you get that with the Romans. You get it with the Persians. You get it with the Assyrians. Look back even further, the Philistines, Moabites, Edomites. There have been a lot of bad eggs, a lot of bad eggs across the history of man. With that said, not all nations or forms of government have been equally bad or equally wicked. Some nations have been better than others. Some nations across the swath of human history have been better than others, or at least some have had longer seasons of peace and, uh, and virtue, comparatively. Seasons where they and their people seem to prosper. But, here's the thing. Historically speaking, they don't last. Historically speaking, given enough time, even the best of nations can fall off the wagon. Given an, enough time, even the best of nations can and have, Gone by the wayside. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, there, there's probably a lot of sociological answers to that. I'm not going to even consider those for, for the moment. But there is also some theological answers that we will consider in the context of today's passage. Theologically, you could say this much. You could say that all leaders, all nations anywhere, are run by fallen people. Fallen people whose fallen sinful nature is capable of messing up anything good. Can't have nice things. might be a thing you could say across the history of mankind because man is bad. We have a fallen, sinful nature, and guess what? That fallen, sinful nature outworks into fallen, sinful choices, choices that can affect huge swaths of population, the negative, particularly if that nation or the leaders involved have pushed God to the periphery. Some nations have never had God anywhere on the radar. Those nations, historically speaking, haven't lasted. The books of Kings and Chronicles depict this ad nauseum. books of Kings and Chronicles, they depict it of the foreign pagan nations, but it also depicts it of God's nation. Even God's own special people routinely fell into apostasy, routinely made terrible choices. Even Israel messed up. And this is God's chosen nation. They routinely went and did all manner of things that they ought not do, made choices that they ought not make. And if it were not for God's covenantal promises that He would uphold them even when they were faithless, that He would be faithful, Israel would have perished with all the Edomites and Philistines and Moabites and Ammonites and all the rest of them. It would be no different. The point is this it doesn't matter what nation, it doesn't matter what era. Sin happens. Sin finds a way to weave in and cause all manner of difficulty and error. Now, where is God when that happens? Where is God when declension is a theological term? Declension happens. Where is God during the course of world events when things are going terrible throughout the nations? Do nations rise and fall just apart from God's intervention? Is God just off munching popcorn somewhere? Kind of watching this unfold? Watching what happens, gonna see what takes place, maybe lending a helping hand here and there, but largely stepping back and just spinning the top and seeing what happens? Is that the way God works? Well no. What we're gonna see in today's text is the same thing we're gonna see throughout the whole scripture. What we're gonna see in today's text is just the opposite. Here in Daniel four, we're gonna see that God is not only attentive to what's going on in his own chosen nation, he's attentive to what's going on in the pagan nations. He's attentive to the world's travails and he's actively engaged in raising up its leaders which that can sometimes befuddle us. In today's text, God is going to remind King Nebuchadnezzar that he rose him up, or he raised this pagan king up. He's going to say this, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. The most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. But if God does that, a question might happen. If God raises up leaders, if he raises up guys like Nebuchadnezzar, why? Why would he raise up a Nebuchadnezzar? Why would he allow decree some of the horrific leaders that the world has seen across even the, the past century. If God raises up the leaders of the nations, why raise up a pharaoh in the centuries past? If you would, let's return to the first three verses of today's reading, because we're going to frame those questions and questions like that against the scriptural backdrop, against what we see in the opening verses of Daniel 4. All right, if you would, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, I'll read these, we'll study them, and then we'll work our way through the passage. Verse 1. I, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion is from generation to generation. All right. In the chapters leading up to today's reading, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has done some terrible, terrible things. In chapter 1, remember this? He attacks Jerusalem and he he takes many of its people captive. And it wouldn't be the first time he'd attack Jerusalem. He does it multiple times. In chapter 2... He had many of his own people, including his wise men and his soothsayers and like, torn limb from limb. And that's not a euphemism for something else. Literally torn limb from limb. In chapter 3, he builds this giant statue, this giant idol of, of gold. And then he tries to burn Daniel's three friends when they would not bow down to it. Across the first three chapters, the king has done wrong. He's doing all manner of tyrannical, terrible, terrible things. In general, you could say that Nebuchadnezzar, at least in the first few chapters, he's a very personification of total depravity. He's a proud, belligerent leader of a proud and belligerent nation. Now, if God really is in charge, if God really is sovereign, if that means something and it's not just high-handed theology, if it means something and God is sovereign, how in the world does that guy, Nebuchadnezzar, rise to power to begin with? Set Babylon aside for a moment. Just focus on Israel. In Israel, God's own chosen nation, how does an Israel ever get a Saul? How does Israel ever get King Saul or King Ahab? Manasseh? Where are these guys coming from if God is sovereign? Well, here's the thing. Sometimes the greatest form of judgment, sometimes the greatest form of judgment that God can render to a nation is to give that nation over to the sort of leaders that their simple hearts want. Sometimes bad leaders are God's judgment on sinful people. This is the case throughout the Old Testament. This happened to Israel time and time again. Sometimes God's judgment of his own nation involved letting them to the sort of leaders that matched them, matched their sinful dispositions. If the people wanted a king, remember the very first king? is King Saul. The people wanted a king. Now, they already had a king. Who was it? Yeah, this is one of the Jesus ones. Yes, God, Jesus. They already had a king. Samuel knew this. He comes to God in prayer and he says, You won't believe what the people are saying. They want a king. They've been looking at all the nations and they want to be just like the nations and they want a king. And God says, Samuel, 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 calm down. I'm going to give them a king, alright. But he's not going to be the sort of king that they want. This is going to be a king that's going to match them, match their wants. He's going to be a king just like what the four nations have and we'll see how they like it then. I'll give them a king that matches their own sinful wants the people want this tall, strapping, good-looking dunce of a king, which is what they got in Saul, then, then one of the best ways to educate them about their folly and their sin was for God to give them just that, to give them this Saul. And then they would see what it was like to live under Saul's reign. Sometimes God gives us over to what we want. And that can be a form of judgment. In this sense, God could, has, did, done, raised up all manner of kings, good and bad alike, to accomplish his sovereign ends from one nation to another, from one part of the globe to the rest. He can use a David. He can use a Solomon. He can use a Hezekiah. He can use all these these individuals. He can also use a Cyrus. He can use a Pharaoh. He can use a Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, though, is different from the Cyrus's and particularly Pharaoh different from Goliath. It's different from all the, the big villains of the Old Testament. It's different. It's unique. Now, one of the things that indicates to us just how unique it is is that King Nebuchadnezzar contributes roughly a whole chapter to the book we call the Bible. We really can't say that to much to anybody else, including a number of the apostles. If you look. This starts off, verse 1. I, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and languages... This is a a letter, an epistle, if you will, from Nebuchadnezzar to the nations, to the people. Now, whether he wrote it down or Daniel transcribed it, it's a different story. But the point is, the majority of the verses, particularly scholars believe the ones at the outset and the ones towards the end, they came from this guy. They came from Nebuchadnezzar. That's unique. That's unique. Pharaoh didn't write part of Exodus. This is unique. What do we make of that? Why such a significant contribution from this guy? Remember, this is still the guy, just, just to put it in context, this is still the guy who very recently... Have been building golden tall statues. Have been throwing people into fiery furnaces. Have been tearing people limb from limb. He's still a villain. However, remember the way last week ended. Last week Nebuchadnezzar he's built this this golden statue. He's built this idol. It's an idol that most scholars believe represented him. It represented him. He built this, and when people wouldn't fall down worship to it, specifically when when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down worship, but he had them thrown into a fiery furnace. But remember he saw when he threw them into the furnace and he looked in and he had this this gleeful look as he wanted to see them, I guess, uh, shake and bake here in the fire. He looks in and he sees something. He sees four figures. And he did the math. Remember, we talked about this last week. He did the math. in Shadrach? Shavrex? Hmm. And he asked the guys around him. He says, didn't we throw in three guys? And they say, true, okay. He says, well, I see a four. And this fourth one looks like the Son of God. And that's the, the way the King James translates it. Most believe that this fallen pagan king had an encounter of sorts with a pre-incarnate Christ. See, this is a theophany, a Christophany. We believe that's what occurred. In a sense, he saw the gospel in a microcosm. Christ came to save those who have been condemned to hellfire, so to speak, to free their bounds and escort them out. He's witness to all this. For reasons that we can't fully know or understand, the first three chapters of the book of Daniel repeatedly demonstrate God trying to teach this king. For reasons we can't know or appreciate that only fall into the good will and good pleasure of God, the first few chapters, including today's chapter, chapter 4, repeatedly demonstrate that God is trying to reveal something about Himself to this king, to King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? In verses 1-3, through three, the king explains that those revelations have had an impact upon him. And again, in verse 2, he says, I thought it good to declare to you the signs and wonders that the Most High has worked for me. All right, let's read about one of those signs and wonders as we look at verses 4 through 18 now. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. And then the magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me the interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my god, according to the name of the Babylonian gods, Bel. His name is Belteshazzar, chief magicians. I brought him in because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in, in you and in Daniel. I know secret troubles you, so explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Verse 10, he explains what the dream was to Daniel. These were the visions of my head. I was looking, and behold, a tree was in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely. Its fruit was abundant. There was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches. All flesh was fed from it. And I saw the visions in visions of my head while I was on my bed that there was a watcher. There was a holy one coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said this, Chop down the tree. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it, the birds out from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him, that's an interesting transition, let him, let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. The decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whoever he will. And he sets over it the lowest of men. Interesting. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able. For the spirit of the holy God is in you. All right. In verses four through eighteen. We're reading about this dream, the second dream. Remember, there was another one, chapter 2. The second dream, the second time Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, he's woke up, he's sweating on his brow, he's, he's anxious, he's nervous. Scripture says he's afraid. And so he calls in his usual guys, you know, the, the local yokels. He calls in the soothsayers and uh, the sorcerers and the magicians and all these guys and their hats and their robes and all their parlor tricks and the like. He calls them in and he asks them to interpret the dream for him. But once again, as was the case in chapter 2, they can't. All these guys, all the the wisdom they had is worth nothing. They're not able to get the job done. And so the king is frustrated because this is not the first time this has happened. These guys routinely mess this up. So then he thinks, well, I know one guy that that won't drop the ball. I don't know why he didn't start with Daniel, but he goes, please bring Daniel in. So Daniel, who he calls Beltrace's czar here, he he comes in to provide the interpretation. And then in verses 10 through 18, the king describes this dream. He says, all right, Daniel, sit down, buckle up, let me tell you what I dreamed, and then I need you to tell me, what does this mean? So he begins to unpack this dream. And like a lot of dreams or visions in Scripture, there's a central image that has some peripheral images. The central image is, is what? It's a tree, a big tree, a mighty tree, a tree whose branches go out, its leaves are amazing, it has all the sorts of great fruit, it provides shade and, and even food to those who, who are beneath it. This majestic tree, it's a tall tree. Scripture says it goes up to the heavens, which is our first sign that there's something interesting about this tree. Now, as we look at that, it's possible that we'd come to the conclusion that, well, this tree is Babylon. Because Babylon matches really everything that we see here. The majesty, the splendor of Babylon falls in line with, with this image. Back in its heyday, Babylon had no equal. Back in its heyday, Babylon had no equal. In 612, after the Babylonians had, had finally conquered the Assyrians after a period of trying, they had expanded their reign. And their reign really filled the whole world. That's why in the verse 1 he talks about all the nations, the peoples, and tongues, and languages. Because his reign was the most dominant reign. He would pushed aside everyone else. The known world at that time had one central guy, it was him. It was Nebuchadnezzar and his might and his majesty and his power really had no boundaries at that time. In terms of power and might, Babylon had no equal. In terms of arts and academics, Babylon had no equal. In virtually every area of civic or international engagement, Babylon had no equal. It rose high above all the nations, and it would be easy to conclude that its branches and leaves were overshadowing the rest. It would be easy to conclude that Babylon, is what the king dreamed of. There's just one problem with that. It's wrong. See, the dream is not about Babylon, per se. It's not about Babylon, per se. It's about Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's about the king. The king is the tree in this image. Let's look at verses 19-25 as Daniel's going to explain this to the king. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. I'll bet he was. He hears this dream, and he knows pretty quick that this dream is not about the kingdom. It's not about a foreign kingdom. It's about the guy sitting in front of him. So he's astonished. He's quiet here. And uh, then the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you so. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concerned your enemies. I hope this has anything to do but with you. However, I'm, I'm afraid it's not the case. Then in verse 20, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had as a home, it is you, O king. It is you who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as you, the the king, saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of the heaven. Let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over. This is their interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. And your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. And shall make you eat grass like oxen. It shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whoever he wants. All right. The tree that you saw, it is you. That's the central point. Because Nebuchadnezzar knows two things. It's a big tree and it's going down. And so Daniel looks at him and says, the tree, it's you, O king. The tree that's going to be cut down, it is you. Back in verse 19, Daniel had been astonished at the contents of this dream, given who he's going to have to convey the information to. It's easy to understand why. You know, if you look back at a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, It's unusual for an uh, an Old Testament prophecy to single out an individual or a king like this. Generally speaking, the Old Testament prophecies, they were judgments on the nations. Most Old Testament prophecies and judgments, they would identify the Ammonites and Edomites and Philistines and Hittites and the like, and they would utter a judgment unto them. But here we see something different. It's a judgment not just on a corporate nation state. It's a judgment on one guy. One guy, the guy who was standing right in front of Daniel. It's a judgment on him. Specifically, God was depicting the king. He was depicting Nebuchadnezzar as this tall and mighty tree that was about to meet with a divine and holy axe—a divine and holy axe. Now, what had what had Nebuchadnezzar done to deserve this? What had Nebuchadnezzar done to deserve this sort of outcome? Well, were you paying attention in the first three chapters? He, he'd done—he'd done plenty. There's all manner of things that he'd done. King Nebuchadnezzar, right from the start of his reign. This guy had always been a bad egg. He, he'd always had a, an appetite for destruction. He'd always had a mentality that he would take his enemies and not just have them killed, but killed in terrible ways, fed to lions, thrown into fiery furnaces, literally torn from limb to limb. This is a, a violent man. But it's a man through his strength and prowess and force of will. He had had just unparalleled military success, economic success, every success. And the result was that his ego, if you picture it as a balloon, <laughs> it had blown up. It was as big as could be. It was time to pop. In time, the king's success and power and fame had exceeded really all of his contemporaries. As the king would walk around, we'll see this later in chapter 4 next week, you know, the king would walk around, he'd get up in the morning, and make his uh, Babylonian coffee or whatever they had. He'd get up early in the morning and he'd walk around and he'd look at the, the gardens. Some people believe that the, the hanging guards of Babylon were there. Some believe that it's in Nineveh. Whatever the case is, the gardens that he had were amazing. And he'd walk around and he'd look at all that he had. And, and he knew he was a commander of all that he could survey. And he'd pat himself on the back, so to speak, and say, How great I am. How great I am. He did this all the time. His ego was great. We're going to again study that exact statement next week. But he tended to compliment himself for the the outcome of his efforts. And frankly, it's it's somewhat understandable because everyone else was complimenting him and telling him how great he was. Oh, king, live forever. Or telling him how great he was. Well, again, he bought into his own press clippings. He thought of himself as the greatest of the great. And then he did what a lot of guys did in Scripture, guys like Pharaoh. He started to see himself as tattooed with the divine, stamped, seeped, immersed in the divine, perhaps divine himself. He saw himself in this way. And next week we're going to see that in the midst of declaring to himself how wonderful he is, in the midst of it, God's going to stop him before the words are even out of his mouth and strike him down. And he's going to be reduced, as we're going to see next week, to a little more than a, than a beast, a beast of the field, an animal. And that outcome is what Daniel anticipates here. It's not just that the tree is going to be cut down as if, king, you're going to die. Ooh, you're gone. Something else is going to happen next. What's going to happen is that the tree is going to be knocked down, but its stump is going to remain. It can be even watered, we see there. And then Daniel immediately transitions to claiming that this tree and even the stump, it's you. It's you, O oh king. And you are going to be turned, so to speak, into a beast of the field. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That comes up four times in this chapter. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That's true not just in the time of Daniel, but in our present age. The Most High rules. It doesn't matter what the media says, culture says, academics say, politicians say, what have you. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, you're going to be in this estate, O king, and you will know that he gives kingdoms, he gives nations to whoever he chooses, even the lowliest, even the lowliest. The world has many kings, many leaders. They go by different names, but it only has one sovereign ruler. It only ever has had one sovereign ruler, one transcendent ruler. There's only one king of kings. There's only one lord of lords. And it is our Lord King Jesus. And this king, this Jesus, he doesn't share his glory with guys like Nebuchadnezzar. So if Nebuchadnezzar pats himself on the back of it, he tells himself how great he is, I'm so wonderful, everything that I see is because of my efforts, my hand. You know what that has the net effect of doing? It has the net effect of robbing glory from God. It has the net effect of Nebuchadnezzar putting himself up. He knew that Daniel's God existed, but he had no trouble pilfering from his glory. You get this? He understood that there was such a thing as gods. In his case, it was plural because he thought there was more than one. He even, at this point, likely anticipated that God Daniel was the number one of those gods. But he didn't mind stealing from his glory. He didn't mind taking God's glory and making it his own. It's not a small thing to do. It's not a small thing to push God to the second chair. God doesn't share his glory. He's not content to be in the back seat while we're driving the bus. That's not the way it works. Now, usually, kindly, gently, patiently, he'll disabuse us of our falsehood along these lines. But honestly, he's going to be exceptionally graceful in doing it with the king, too, even though it's not going to seem that way, as he's going to lose his mind. This man needs to be humble, and so God's going to humble him. God knows what we need. If our walk is out of line with where it ought to be, God knows what will bring us back. The problem for many of us, if not all of us, is that what will bring us back is not always something we would want. That's certainly the case here. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar will lose his mind. He's going to go back and forth across the fields like an animal. Now, to what end? To what end? What's the purpose of this judgment on this one guy in these time of antiquity? Well, again, it would seem that the purpose is humility. You know, you can never see God aright. You can never approach His throne aright without a disposition of humility, without a penitent nature. You can't approach the throne of God and have a right relationship with the One who sits there if you're not humble. And James 4, what does God say? It says, Excuse me, what does James say? He says, God opposes, opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar needed him some humbling. Now next week, we're going to talk about the terrifying nature of that humbling, how difficult this would have been. But at the end of today's passage, we see the, the, the sign that although it's coming, although it's going to happen to the king, there's a sense here, even in the verses we've studied already, that it would not be forever. Sometimes God disciplines us for a season, for a season of time. And in this case, the season would have an end date. It would have an end date once it had reached its outcome or its purposes. And then the king would be restored. He'd be restored to, really to two things. First of all, to his right mind. and would be restored to his throne. That outcome, Daniel anticipates in verse 25, which we just read. Now, before we look at the, the last verses, let me ask you, why restore him at all? Given all that he'd done, Given the amount of wickedness that this guy had done, he was the king of Babylon. It's almost written in the job title that you're a bad egg, a bad dude. And he was one. Given that he was, why restore him at all? Why didn't the axe just come down and take him out and move along? Nothing to see here. Why restore this guy? Why not just kill him outright? The short answer is we don't know. As a pastor, we can always appeal to the mystery of God. We're going to appeal to the mystery of God here. I don't know why he chose Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know why he gave Nebuchadnezzar grace that he didn't give to Pharaoh. I don't know. God here is granting Nebuchadnezzar grace that men like Pharaoh or, or Goliath or Herod didn't receive. And because of that, it seems reasonable to conclude that God has a different outcome in mind for Nebuchadnezzar than for those other guys. All right, we'll consider again that further next week. But let's finish up with our verses for today. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. See this? There's a promise of restoration. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel looks at the king and at this point, Daniel had served the king for a number of years. And although he knew that the guy had been a monster in many ways, he held out hope for this guy. They had a relationship and he looks at the king and he says, Stop sinning and maybe, stop sinning and fly right. Maybe things will work out. Hey, king, stop sinning. Stop pursuing ungodly things. Straighten up, fly right. And maybe, perhaps, there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. At least there will be a longer season of time before things go haywire for you. Now, after interpreting this dream, again, Daniel gives the king a warning. But will he take it? Well, you have to tune in next week, I guess, to find out. But the, I guess the spoiler alert is, no, he didn't. <laughs> he's not going to take that warning. A whole year is going to go by, and he's going to continue to pat himself on the back. He's going to continue to do things he was doing before. He's going to continue to live the way that he was living. And then, in a moment, God is going to act. With that said, let me close this morning with a final observation. You know, fallen men and women in Babylon, in Israel, in this room today, fallen men and women have just an uncanny ability An uncanny ability to disassociate truth from action. To disassociate things that we know to be true, that we nod our heads to and give cognitive assent to. We have this uncanny ability to disassociate that which we know to be true from our choices. From our lifestyle. From things that we want to pursue. Early on in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about man's problem. He's talking about fallen man. And he's saying fallen man makes some really fallen choices. And he says this. He says that fallen men and women have this innate sense that God is there. We have an innate sense that God exists and that He reigns over the kingdoms of men and even reigns over us. We have an innate sense. It's hardwired into us is what Paul says right at the start of Romans. But he says we have this amazing tendency to take that truth and to suppress it. Take what we know to be true and to suppress it. To suppress the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His law, the knowledge of how we're supposed to live, and to suppress it. You don't have to be an atheist or pagan to do that either. We can suppress aspects of Scripture. We can go to the book, come across a text that we don't really like, take it, put it on the the, the shelf, so to speak, and live in ways that are in violation of that, even as we know it is true. Even as we understand what God has said, we act differently because we don't like it. Whether you call it suppression, whether you call it cognitive dissonance, it's all a smokescreen. It allows people to have a hazy view of their creator and to lift up their own priorities as, as the created. This is the default setting, not only of people, but of nations. To suppress a corporate understanding that there is a God who reigns from heaven and to act and to enact laws that violate His sovereign decrees. Virtually every nation... Every government deliberately keeps God at arm's length, deliberately keeps God at arm's length and goes about its business as if God either A, isn't there or B, doesn't care. That's been the case of nations throughout the history of mankind. It's really no different in our modern age. And over the centuries, that type of nation has always gone into the dustbin of history. Over the centuries, that type of nation, that mentality has always gone in the trash and it's never worked out. Meanwhile, the kingdom of God is going strong. You know what Babylon is right now? If you're to go visit a Babylon, it's buried in the sands of time. Theoretically exists as what? As ruins. That's Babylon. That is this high and mighty and esteemed nation of its age. You go back, you look at Rome, at its epoch, you look at virtually every nation under the sun since the dawn of man, buried in the sands of time. However, even as that is true, the kingdom of God remains forever. Even as that is true, the kingdom of God is more pervasive now than it's ever been. Its ambassadors fill the globe. Its priests fill the nation. Its central doctrines repeatedly hold out as true, even while the opinions of fallen men change. The Word of God remains, and sustains, and His kingdom has grown every century since the beginning of time. There's a lesson in the power, the sustainability of the kingdom of God over and against the kingdoms of men. Let's pray. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. If today's sermon's been helpful or encouraging for you, then check back tomorrow for another study of God's Word.